Well, you can count on it like money uh, in the bank every year at this time. A religious expert's going to write an article that gets shared all over the internet, which explains away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Well, sure enough, like clockwork, I came across an article in my newsfeed last week written by, wouldn't you know it, a religious studies scholar at a prestigious um, graduate study program which did just that. He was writing an article on some (coughs) Easter fun facts. And uh, he said, you know, Easter has its roots in ancient history. And he said, uh, one Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate upon his triumphal entry. And uh, because of the disturbance in the temple, the Romans executed him and put him to death. So he said, here's the historical connection to Easter. Uh, Some of his disciples believed they saw him alive after he died. And so began the beginning of the ancient observance of Easter. Now, I want you to notice what's uh, hidden in here, which is this, uh, that this man fully believes in the death of Jesus. And I got to thinking about that, and I said, you know, that's probably a pretty easy claim to believe, because I think that if you went around to every religious studies department in America, you would find at least 90 to 95% agreement among all of the scholars and the academics out there that Jesus actually died. I even came across an article just the other day that the radical New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, had to write an article saying, yes, I believe in the death of Jesus. Who wouldn't? Even Tacitus, a Roman historian, said he did. He wrote it down in his annals. But you know what people don't believe in? And it's the resurrection. What they don't believe in is the resurrection. You can get people to agree all day long that there was an historical Jesus, that he was a man, and that he died. And he probably, um, well, whether he deserved it or not, he was probably even crucified. But the problem that people face is a Jesus who is a divine person who was raised from the dead. That's the one they can't abide. That's the one that they just uh, stumble over with all of their human reason. And so uh, here's a very typical way to get around that. They say, well, these poor people, these Christians, these believers a long time ago basically had some sort of subjective experience. Uh, whether it was a hallucinogenic experience or some psychotic episode or, or whatever, they had an experience and it was subjective in nature and they really believed somehow that Jesus was alive after he had been dead. So basically they say, well, this is how we deal with it. The resurrection is just some sort of a fable or myth or a recycled um, way of speaking through ancient mythological tales or some sort of subjective experience. But, you know, it's really not all that central to the life of Christ and the history of the church. And yet I look at my text this morning, and one thing that I notice here in Paul's testimony to the Corinthians is that two things are, are locked together absolutely inseparably. And that is the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. In fact, the apostles said, these are first principles. Without them, you don't have Christianity. As he says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What holds together 
as a thing of foundational or first importance is both that Christ died and that he rose again. So why would Paul be talking about it? Well, irony of ironies, because some who claimed to be believers didn't. Some who claimed to be believers did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this false teaching was circulating in Corinth. And what strikes me about that is how it runs so counter to the modern elitist intellectual religious studies scholar who thinks he's doing us a favor by explaining away the phenomena of the belief in the resurrection by saying, well, some believe they had an experience. And here the Apostle Paul is writing 20 years after the resurrection of Christ because people who claim to be believers don't think it happened. Because they didn't believe in such things as material bodies rising from the dead. And so Paul writes what he does here in 1 Corinthians 15 to inoculate the truth against such lies. And you know, uh, he says, what you must believe if you're a Christian is this. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that, the Christian faith is vain. And you might as well stay home and watch NASCAR. Because there's no point in acting like a Christian. I want to speak to you this morning, people of God, about things which are of first importance, which are fundamental, which are foundational to Christian faith, which are so necessary and essential to it that without it, there's no Christianity. And that is... What we find here in our text, these first things, and we're going to see four gospel claims, three gospel facts, and one gospel condition. And so I want us to begin here looking at four gospel claims, and we see that beginning in verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. And the thing that you need to be aware of is that this word gospel in 1 Corinthians 15.1 is modified by four subsequent phrases. Each one explains something about this gospel which the Apostle Paul is reminding them of. And the first that he preached it, the second is they received it, the third is they stand in it, and the fourth is they are saved by it. So let's think about those four gospel facts quickly. And you would know here that the Apostle says, well, I make it known to you. And a wrong way of interpreting that would be to say that, well, the Apostle Paul uh, hadn't really made known the gospel to them before. That he's come upon something new after his time as being an apostle, he's reflecting and studying the word, but now he's sort of augmenting and adding to the first gospel message which he had preached to them. He's also not saying that the gospel message has somehow changed since he first preached to them. And he's not even saying to them that they've likely forgotten what he has said. No, what he's doing here is he's going on record to the Corinthians as they are facing the onslaught of false teaching. And he's saying, I want you to know this is what I preach to you. This is foundational to the Christian church. And the very first thing he said is, I've made known this gospel to you. And, uh, you know, people of God, there's a way for us this morning to verify Paul's statement. <laughs> because we read about Paul's missionary preaching uh, in Corinth in the book of Acts. 
Acts 18 tells us he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that the Jesus was the Christ. Now I want you to notice here, this is about the record that Luke provides of Paul's missionary preaching in Corinth. And the thing that he says about the apostle is that he was reasoning in the synagogue. That's his practice. Literally, if you look through the book of Acts, which we studied, uh, we would note that town after town after town that the Apostle Paul went into, the first thing he would do on his first and second missionary journeys was go into the Jewish synagogue, open up his Bible, show his rabbinical credentials, and expound the scriptures to them. And the thing that he was trying to do was to persuade them, trying to win Jews and Greeks to Christ. And so we can see here the testimony of what he said to the Corinthians because verse 5 says so. He was solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. He was solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born to the Virgin Mary, who was the Son of God incarnate, who bore our flesh, who marched around the hillsides of Palestine preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, who performed numerous and and countless miracles, who was known publicly at one point in his ministry, perhaps at the high point, nothing less than thousands of people were following him and hanging on his word. And the man who the apostle Peter could look right in the whites of their Jewish eyes and see on the day of Pentecost, you nailed him to the cross. That guy. You see, he's speaking about Christ and his humanity. That he bears our flesh, that he is our mediator. And he says about him that he's the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Well, somebody might say, well, Pastor Sautel, that's fine that Paul went into the synagogue and he preached that Jesus was the Christ. But I don't see any testimony here from Acts 18, at least explicitly, that he testified that uh, Jesus was both Um, that Jesus suffered and died and was raised from the dead. And I said, okay, well, I have you as back up to to Acts 17, where we find the pattern of synagogue preaching. And what we're told there is he went into the synagogue, according to his custom, and he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he caps off, Luke caps off the testimony, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, there are so many overlapping words and phrases here. It makes very clear to us that what we have as a snapshot testimony in Acts 18 needs to be read in view of the prior text of Acts 17. And it's very clear that what Paul was doing in the synagogue was not just to persuade that Jesus was the Christ, but how we know he was the Christ. Because he fulfilled what the scripture said about the Christ, which is that he would die and that he would rise from the dead. Those twin statements and historical facts had to be fulfilled according to the Old Testament. It could not be the Christ 
Well, here the apostle is writing to these rowdy Corinthians and he says, I want you to remember this is what I preach to you. What I preach to you without wavering, without compromise, without withholding any of the essential facts and data was this, that Jesus both died and rose from the dead. That's the gospel that he preached there. And the thing is, that he reminds them of here now in verse 1, after saying he preached to them, is that they received it. They received it. And if your Bible was open and you were looking over at Acts 18, you would see the testimony of the reception of the gospel in Corinth. And and one of the things that's so fascinating about the testimony there is that Paul kind of, he was drilling on hard pan for a while. It was some rocky road soil there. He was preaching, and everybody had tiny little ears. They wouldn't hear the thing. And he got so upset, he finally left the synagogue. And we're told that um, he walked out the front door of the synagogue and went and sat on the front porch, well, of a man named Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was located right next to the door of the synagogue. And there, Crispus... The synagogue leader listened to Paul preach the word and got saved in all of his house. Isn't that a great irony here this morning when you think about it? That he's preaching in the synagogue. The apostle has to shake the dust of the sandals off his feet and leave the synagogue in order to convert somebody from the synagogue. But that's the, the ways of the Lord. And as he brings the gospel out from the synagogue into the Gentile realm of Corinth, he begins preaching the word, and Jews and Greeks got saved. And that's what he means here when he says, you received it. When they heard this message, they received it. They received it by faith. And what's more is the apostle goes on to say, in which you now stand. That means they are continuing to adhere to the truth. Now, I've told you, I know, that there are some false teachers surrounding the congregation who are pushing their false doctrine and ideology upon some in the congregation, but we don't yet, or as of yet at this point, uh, have the warrant to say they were buying into it, but they were certainly being troubled by it. That's why Paul writes what he does here. So he says, up to this point, I can say I... I know of this. You once professed the truth. You received it. You confessed it. You believed. And you're still standing in it. And here is really the punchline, the culmination of this testimony here. It's the best news of all. It's in verse 2. By which you're saved. I love that because it makes it so plain. This is the great hope of the gospel and of preaching, right? That when Jesus Christ is is proclaimed as the Son of God who, who became incarnate to, to live a righteous and perfect life in obedience to the law of God and to go suffer and die on the cross bearing our sin, receiving the outpouring of divine wrath upon Him and then rising from the dead, the joy and the hope of the gospel is that when a person believes that, no matter how sinful their life is, they are saved fled from the wrath which is to come. They found a refuge in Jesus Christ. 
and they are partakers of eternal life right now. Every single one of you who sits here this morning that believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who, who died on the cross for sin and rose from the dead, you, you're standing in eternal life right now. You have something that's so precious that the world has no idea about. You are in Christ and all the gospel mercies are yours. That's what Paul makes known to them. But as Paul proceeds, he's set out four gospel claims. Now he sets forward three gospel facts. We've trimmed around the edges of this, but I do want to take just a moment to look at them before we get into the last point, which is really the, the punchline of our text. And you see here what the apostle does is uh, he says, I want to remind you of the great gospel facts of the message I preached to you. So look at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, we, we love to stop when we see for, and therefore, and but, and because, and since, and all those words, because they tell us a connection is being forged. And that word for looks right back to the, to the middle of the last verse where the apostle says, hold fast the word. That's a very important uh, term there because it means the statement. In other words, the apostle Paul was saying when he preached to them, his preaching was something like a, a summation, a summary statement. And that's the essential facts of the gospel. And that's what he says now. He goes on to verse 3. I delivered unto you as of first importance. And now as you read on to verse 3 and to verse 4, you see what that word consisted of. That summary statement consisted of. It consisted in three things. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. And Christ was raised the third day. So let's look at these three gospel facts. And the, the first thing that he says here, the first gospel fact which he included in this word or this statement of, of gospel truth was that Christ died for sin. And you know, there's, there's no way of laying hold of the meaning of the good news of the gospel until you lay hold of the bad news. And the bad news about uh, the gospel is us, sin. Every Presbyterian toddler can tell you what sin is. And the reason is because they lived on their mama's knee. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Every little covenant child learns that. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is every single failure to comply with and to obey the law of God. And for us, when we hear that, it means very little in our fallenness. But the Word of God interprets the danger of sin when it says that a man is cursed if he doesn't conform to it. But Paul goes on to expound that. He's reaching back to the Old Testament. He said, cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. This is where we get into trouble. This is the gospel message that the world around us really doesn't like. Because it's a meddlesome message. You want to talk about cancel culture? Here it is. <laughs> One single sin is enough 
for you to fall short of the glory of God and to receive eternal condemnation. You see, the people don't take the gospel seriously today because the church doesn't take sin seriously today. This is what sin is. It is an offense against the holiness of God because God is a purer eyes than to behold evil. And so this is where we begin to understand the joy of the gospel because every single one of our sins, well, it makes us fall short of eternal life. And the only way to have eternal life is to have that debt cleared. And that's why we're so thankful when we hear the Apostle Paul say that what is of one of those essential elements of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for sins. And without taking time to dig into an entire extra mini-sermon on what this is all about, maybe I can just give a thumbnail sketch. Because it's important. We've already talked about our sin and how it brings us into debt. It's got to be taken care of. And here's what Hebrews 9.28 says. That Christ, having offered Himself once to bear the sins of many. To bear them. It's an allusion to Isaiah 53, 12. But what it means is the sins of the people were heaped up and they were placed upon Christ. That's how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins. See, this is where we begin to understand the meaning of the gospel that Jesus Christ stood in our place as a substitute. And He is declared to be sin for us. And that means He is the sin bearer. He takes our sins on Himself. And when He is strung up on the cross between thieves, well, what is He doing but bearing the punishment of our sin and the curse of our sin? And that's how we receive salvation is because He took that upon Himself in our place. The apostles said He did that according to the Scripture. And you know, uh, the Apostle had just the opposite of a Gideon Bible. You know, I used to have a little Gideon Bible. Uh, and I liked it. It was green. And I'd put it right here in my pocket. And at work, after I got saved, what I'd do is on my break is I'd read that little Bible. It gave me a lot of peace at work when I was <laughs> irritated with people was I'd take that Bible out and I'd start reading. But you know that Bible only had the New Testament. <laughs> the Bible that Paul is speaking of here is not the Gideon Bible of the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. See, when the apostle went into the synagogue and reasoned from the Scripture, he didn't have a Gideon Bible. He had the opposite. He had the Old Testament. And what he's doing is expounding the types and the shadows and the promises and the prophecies. That's what he's saying here. According to Scripture, Christ had to die. Remember, that was the scandal and the offense of the Jews. They couldn't imagine a crucified Savior and Messiah. They said that was gross. But how about Isaiah 53? He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, he himself being a guilt offering. 
Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors and he himself bore the sin of many. It feels like you're reading the Gideon Bible, huh? It feels like you're reading the New Testament. Why? Because this is all over the New Testament. When the apostles wanted to explain what it was about Christ or Jesus that, that assured us that he was the Christ, is they reached for the, the promises and the prophecies of the old. And they said, he's fulfilled them. This is his work. That's the gospel. People of God this morning, what does that mean for you? It means propitiation. That's a 50 cent word to say this. God's wrath is over for you. God's wrath is over for you. The Apostle John puts it like this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. The next time you sin and you feel the guilt of sin, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. If you don't sense the guilt of your own sin, something's wrong. The next time you do, you are entitled to lay hold of this verse. Remind yourself that Jesus is the propitiation. The fact that Jesus died according to the Scriptures means forgiveness of sins. That's what Paul says. We have in Him redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins. Christ died for us means that we're reconciled to God. We love this verse. Romans 5, 1, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not an enemy of us. What it means that Christ died for us means God loves us. <coughs> Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These are marvelous statements. What it means that Christ died for us is the love of God in Christ is for us. The second uh, gospel fact here that Paul brings out is he was buried. We really don't have to spend much time here because, again, if you go to your local religious studies department and you consult one of the scholars there, uh, they'll all agree he was buried. I don't think anybody has any problem with it. Even the Pharisees believed he was buried. Remember that? Uh, on the Sabbath day, the day after Christ's death, the day after Passover, they went to... They went to Pilate and they say, would you give us a, an armed guard to seal up the tomb so that his disciples don't come and spread the lie uh, that he rose from the dead when they really just stole his body? Remember that? Even the Pharisees who rejected the gospel believed he was buried. Not a problem for anybody. We know that. But here comes the controversy. I know Paul didn't include it because it was difficult for people to believe, but here comes the controversy. He was raised the first day. And this is the good news, right? He was raised. Um, the statement, he is risen, I think is uh, pretty much everywhere right now, isn't it? He's risen. And a friend of mine texted me this morning and uh, going back and forth about problems in his life. He doesn't go to church so much. I don't know. I, I said, you know, there's the hope of the gospel. He's risen. <clears throat> Whatever problem we have, I think it's resolved right here. He's risen. We love the report in Matthew 28 where the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Come and see the place where He was lying. 
And you know, the Apostle Paul says he preached this message to them here in verse 4 according to the Scripture. He said, I don't even need to include the testimony of the angels. I can preach to you, and I preach to you the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament Bible because it was prophesied of Christ that he would die and rise from the dead. The authority for believing the resurrection of the dead is the same for us as it was for them. The Word of God. The Word of God proclaimed it. It said it was so. But you know what's so fascinating here? Is that. Look at verse 5. That. You know what? It modifies that word delivered in verse 3. He said, I delivered to you. There's clause after clause heaped up here. But that word that at verse 5 is also what Paul delivered. Did you know what he does here? Just to confirm these people, he said, I already proclaimed to you what was first importance, that Jesus had to be raised from the dead according to the scriptures. But he said, uh, I'm going to do something more. When he first preached the gospel to them, he said, I want you to be grounded in the set of witnesses. So what does he do? He gives us a laundry list of witnesses in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, and we all know that's Peter. We're told then he appeared to the twelve. And what's interesting about that is on the day of his resurrection, towards the end of the day, he appeared to the twelve. And here's what he said, to hold my hands and my feet, it's me, myself, handle me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. The thing that Christ wanted to convince the apostles of is that he wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't 3D imaging or a trick. He said, here are my hands. Here are my feet. Here is my side. You go on to verse 6. He was seen by 500 brethren at once. We don't know what exactly that was. But the reality is the Apostle Paul says, most of whom have remained until now. So that tells us, I brought the receipts. If you want to check with them, they're right here. He knew who they were. You know one that gets me, though? And this is the one, because I'm really weak in faith sometimes, the one that gets me is this. Verse 7. He appeared to James. Well, there's a little bit of dispute here. Is this James, the brother of John, who was an apostle? No. Because by the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, he'd been dead for 10 years. The Corinthians didn't even know who he was. The James who is referring to here is the James who is the head now of the Jerusalem church who is the brother of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know why that helps me? It's because John 7, 5 said even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, if you have brothers, you can believe this because you know your brothers. If your brother went making some fantastical claims you'd say, yeah, right. There is zero indication that any of Jesus' brothers and perhaps not even his own mother believed in him until both the crucifixion and the resurrection. The greatest skeptic was James. And Paul includes him here in the list 
And I think it's for our assurance that even the skeptic can listen to this and say, wow, that's overpowering. And then he goes on to say that he was seen by the other apostles. And finally, he said he appeared to me last as one who was born out of due time. Paul leaves all kinds of evidence off this list. But what he does do here is he says there is a list of certified and credible eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is the message, the word I gave to you when I first preached the gospel to you. How dare you depart from it? People of God, this morning, this message is just as authoritative today as it was then. And let me tell you why. Because the Apostle Paul says here in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. That is a word of authority. It was used by the rabbis to speak of handing down authoritative tradition. And here the Apostle Paul makes it clear the message which he proclaimed to them was a message of authority. It had been received, but here's the thing that's so significant about that statement, because if you look over in Galatians 1.12, Paul says this, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it, there's our word, from a man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when the Apostle Paul says that the gospel which he received and he delivered to them, he is footnoting or key linking into this broader concept that the authority of his message is not the authority of the apostle, it's not the authority of the church, it's not the authority of the eyewitness, it's the authority of Christ. It comes with all the weight and the power and the authority and dignity and uh, infallibility of Christ himself. You see, they were to receive that message just as we are today, based not on a long list of witnesses. They were to receive it because it came with Christ's sovereign, divine authority. The other thing that's important here is the priority of these facts, which are the summary of the word. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. You see, people of God, again, the world around us is quite happy for you to have a weak little faith. It's quite happy for you to speak about Jesus and having a personal relationship with him. It's not offended by that at all. (laughs) The world is not concerned that you say pious things about Jesus. The world around you is not bothered that you take inspiration from Jesus. That you find in his death a model, an example to follow. And that you listen to his words and you find them to be full of wisdom and insight and real world practical help. What the world's not interested in is a supernatural Christ. (laughs) Who rose from the dead under his own authority and power. That's the Christ of the word. And Paul says, you can't have a crucified Jesus only and have the gospel and the hope of eternal life and the mercies of God. The only way you are saved by believing this message is if you believe in the message of the whole Christ, the Son of God incarnate. 
who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead in that same body. Those are the three gospel facts. And why are these so important? Because it brings us to our third point, one gospel condition. I know it's stuffy and warm in here, but hang with me on my last point. Because this is really the linchpin of the whole message here. And we find it in verse 2, which says, By which also you are saved. That's the gospel message in the new part, which is so confrontational and so essential to us this morning, is if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. See, the apostle says here, he hedges himself now. He said, by this gospel you're saved if you hold fast. And so we think of the gospel claims, the message preached, the message received, the message that they were standing in and enduring in and saved by. That's the gospel message. And then he says, but there's the means of salvation which are critical here. And the means of the salvation is made very clear if you hold fast. I know some translations have, you hold it in your memory, but the word doesn't mean that, and it's not even close to what's meant here. The problem isn't their memory. The problem is their faith. Is their faith focused upon this message? You see, it's a, it's a conditional clause. If they actually believe and hold fast, then they are saved. But the flip side is true also. If they don't believe it, then they are not saved. And so what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here is press upon them that the only hope of salvation is in believing in this Christ, the one of the gospel message who is contained in the word that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. They must maintain that and hold fast to it and here's the problem because he says in verse 2 unless you believed in vain this is the flip side and you know what a, a vain faith is it's a it's a faith that's to no effect it's a faith that is to no effect or to no purpose it's to say, I believe, and I, I'm always struck by how people so casually speak of their faith and believing. And what they mean is something like, um, faith begins where reason ends. Yes, there's all this mysterious stuff, and the best thing I know how to call it is God. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's vain. We know that's what is vain because the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Your faith also is vain. You see, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead... The Apostle Paul says, we are of all men most miserable. And we're still in our sins. There'd be no need to put on your best clothes and come to church on Sunday. There'd be no need to set your alarm. You might as well go to Starbucks or do whatever else you want to do. Make it a beach day for all I care or Disneyland. 
If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing is just a dress rehearsal. It means absolutely nothing. And so what Paul says is, the message which saves is the message which offends human reason. That's really the point here. The message which saves is the message which offends human reason. You see, the gospel message will be tolerated right up to the point where it runs up against fallen sinful human reason and where people say, I just can't believe in that. And that's exactly usually where the real, state, the real claim is staked out. That's where the Christian faith is at stake. Because you see, after all, if there was a real incarnation, I think the rest is pretty easy to follow, right? If he really is the incarnate Son of God, the rest not hard to follow at all. Because he is a divine person. And so the apostle is challenging the people in Corinth. What will be the warrant and the authority and the basis of your faith? Will it be according to the scriptures? Remember, that's exactly how he described these events. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. Will your faith be according to the scriptures? Well, people of God, if it is, there's great assurance. There's great assurance. I come back to that conditional statement. The apostles say you are saved if you hold fast. If your faith is in this word about Christ he died for our sins he was buried he rose from the dead then all of the mercies of Christ are yours not one is left out all of the mercies of Christ are yours and so the challenge this morning is what will you believe will you believe the testimony of the religious studies experts who spend their time engaging in craft, spinning away the essential elements of the gospel because they're offensive to human reason? Or will you have your faith take a stand upon the only thing which is infallible and inspired and inerrant and imperishable word? And that is scripture if we hear this gospel message this morning and embrace it by faith we are saved and that means the full hope of the gospel is yours I love how the Heidelberg Catechism states that particularly as it lays hold of the doctrine of the resurrection it says by his resurrection he has overcome death that he might make us partakers of the righteousness he obtained by his death and by his power, we are also now raised up to a new life. And third, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our own blessed resurrection. If you want to lay hold of the hope and the joy of the gospel, it's right here. In a Christ who stormed death's gates and took the victory.
because the word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means he is the down payment and the seal and the surety for it. Because Christ rose from the dead, so will you. And rise unto eternal life and the full joy of God in Christ. That is the great assurance and hope of the gospel. And so this morning, people of God, I urge us to take our stand firm in faith and embrace the whole Christ of the whole message of the gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose from the dead. These are the things of first importance.